I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we are, we are nearing the end of a study through 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, of course, is one of the letters in the New Testament. We often call it a book, but it's really a letter from, from the Apostle Paul to a church, a local church, and he wants to talk about a bunch of things. We are nearly to the end of that study. We'll finish the end of June, kind of a heads up as to where we're going, starting July 2nd. There will be 10 sermons that we will present on key theological topics, uh, deeply theological, pastorally preached. That's the intent. So there will be 10 topics of theology, but we don't want this to be like a theology class where you go, yep, well, that was great. Now what do I do? Well, no, more more than that. So, So for example, July 2nd, uh, we'll get started with the doctrine of the Trinity. Why does it matter? And what is that? And how do you explain what it means that God is a triune God? And frankly, who cares? How does that affect my life and my faith? So come July 2nd, we'll define that doctrine, explain where it came from, from the Bible, and why it matters to you. So, And it does, profoundly so. So anyway, that's what we want to do for 10 weeks. That'll take us to... to Labor Day, September, a couple of weeks to talk about the year ahead, and then the close of that month, we will begin a, 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 an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. We return to one of the Gospels every three or four years because we never want to get too far away from Jesus, okay? So that's why we cycle back routinely. So it's been 14 years since we've um, dealt with the Gospel of Mark, so it's time again. So that's the plan for the next year. Now you know. But 2 Corinthians 12, wow, okay, so we're in a section of this book, we'll pray together in a moment, but a section of this book where Paul has been defending his his role as an apostle. If you've worshiped with us and studied with us, you know that in the Bible, um, as you've heard me define it, the word apostle is used a couple different ways. It's used in, in what I call a small a sense of people who are sent by God on specific tasks. And it's also used, I would suggest, in a capital A way, meaning those who were specifically designated by God to be key people in the founding of the church. So the disciples, other than Judas, and certainly the Apostle Paul is one of those, saw the resurrected Christ and very much designated by God as an official spokesperson for for God. So a capital A Apostle. Well, Paul's been defending that because then, as now, there are always going to be those who come along and say, well, who says so? Who says so? On whose authority do you say that? Who asked you anyway? What do you mean apostle? Well, I'm, as in Paul's case, other people saying, well, I'm one too. How about that? And Paul rolling up his, his, the sleeves of his robe and saying, oh, really? Let's talk about it. And so he is. And it matters a lot for the authority of the word of God and certainly his authority as an apostle through whom God gave us much of the Bible. So, uh, I'll, I'll say more about the text in a minute. Right away, you might be going, well, that should be a great sermon. Uh, I want you to know there's two parts of this. There's that part, and then there's another part that talks about Paul experiencing God's gift of suffering. God's gift. God's gift of suffering. Well, I want to hear about that. So I want to pray for us. Would you join me, please? Our Father, as we come to your word today, this is a a tremendous privilege, and we ask your help in it, to place ourselves under the authority of the word of God as your word, 
the authority that you carry represented here in this book. Our Father, would you help us to hear it well, to understand the things that perhaps are a little more technical here and there, and as well that our hearts would resonate with the parts that are are so evidently connected with the the struggles of our life. Um, So would you help us as we read and talk about the Word of God today? We invite your presence in Jesus' name. Amen. So Bibles are open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Notes from your bulletin. I routinely follow those pretty closely, so you'll have an idea of where we're at. And uh, I don't mention everything that's on there, but you'll, you'll get an idea of what we're doing. The section called Review, I encourage you to take a look at that. That's there to help those of you who are, are joining us or here periodically and so on to have some idea where we've been. And so take the time to read that. Then there's a paragraph called Today's Text that says a word about what we're doing today. And I want to look at this with you because you're going to see the word boasting. Okay, right in verse 1 as we begin reading it in a moment. And that's this broader section of Paul defending his role as an apostle. He calls it boasting, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but he's, he's explaining his credentials, so to speak. But, but you're, we're going to see in today's text that moving from chapter 11, Paul moves from talking about his experiences of suffering, which are significant, to experiences with what he's going to call visions and revelations from the Lord. Well, that's a whole different category of talking. Visions and revelations? Boy, we hear some of these things today. But I mention here a rare look. A rare look. Why do I say that? Here's why. Because unlike many today who would claim such experiences, Paul isn't talking about it all the time. He hasn't written a book called Paul's Trip to Heaven, he, he doesn't use it as sermon illustration material. In fact, other letters Paul writes, he doesn't say a word about it because he wants the focus so much to be on Christ and what Jesus did for us, not on Paul's cool experiences. So he doesn't say much about it. So this is a rare look at what I think is pretty significant in Paul's life, but he, he doesn't play that card very much, and we'll see the reasons why in the text. So if you look at your notes, you will see then two big headings that I'm going to address, verses 1 through 6, that I call apostolic authority, came with unique privileges. That's looking at the Apostle Paul in particular. And then the second section, even great apostles need great humility. That's verses 7 through 12. So those are my two headings today. But I want to read the text, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 10, together as we hear God's word. So Paul says this, I must go on boasting Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited, arrogant, proud. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's word. Wow, okay, so the two sections then, one through six, I think seven through 10, those, those are kind of evident in how they break down. So what's going on in verses one through six? Paul's talking about this business of visions and revelations. So is he talking about his experience or somebody else's? Huh, because he kind of says this other guy, this other guy, this other guy. What's going on here in the text? Well, you're going to hear me explain I think it's talking about Paul, and I think verses 1 and 7 kind of make that clear. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to say three things about the text before we look more specifically at it. So three things here on your sermon notes, those first three bullet points, okay, that I just want to press on for a moment about this topic. So I'm saying here under that first bullet point, not only has Paul suffered greatly for the gospel, but he's been given some unique experiences from God that are not normative for all believers. By normative, cool word, I mean not normal. That's what I mean by that. Not assumed, not things that every Christian should say, well, Paul got a trip to heaven, it sounds like. I mean, that sounds like fun. Paul's trip to heaven. How come I don't get one too? Can't I sign up? So, I mean, it would really strengthen my faith. So what's going on? I'm suggesting to you uh, that, that these experiences, as Paul describes them, are not normative, but rather marks of a true apostle. They fit with God's gift to him, underscoring him as a capital A apostle, as I put here on your notes, capital A apostle, one who had seen a witness of the resurrected Christ. And I'm just giving a nod to what we're going to be doing next week which is verses 11, 12, and 13. Very short text. But I want to talk more extensively about this because verse 12, Paul says, the marks of a true apostle are evident. They were, they were demonstrated among you. And this happened, he says, great patience, signs, wonders, and, and, and miracles. So I want to talk about that because you hear things about signs, wonders, and miracles. I know you do. I do too. So what is all that about? And what does Paul mean by, verse 12, the signs of a true apostle. What do you mean? Are there signs of a true apostle? What's a true apostle? What, do you, what is that? That's next week. But these texts connect, of course, because it's a letter being written. So Paul's talking about something, and I'm saying to us today that what Paul's describing here about visions and revelations, I, I'm saying are not normative, that is normal for all believers. And again, I'll comment on some of these things more extensively as we, we move along. Now, direct revelation is an essential part of Paul's apostolic authority. That is, Paul heard from God. I'm saying that's in the non-normative category as well. Again, we'll talk more about some of these things next week. Uh, I've referenced this not that long ago. People are often uh, describing all these conversations with God. I think Paul, though, as a capital A apostle, had kind of an inside track on this. 
in a way that, hear me say it, in a way that you don't. Because you're not an apostle. Last I checked. I want to give you an example of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, I want to read verses 11 and 12. You might find um, you, some of the things I say today might give you things to think about or push back on. I have no problem discussing all kinds of things. But in Galatians chapter 1, then, verses 11 to 12, uh, Paul says some things about this. He says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I did not hear of the story of Jesus from Sunday school, like y'all did. That's not how I got it. I got the words of the gospel, the details of the gospel from God himself. You remember, Paul, before coming to Christ, a saving relationship with Jesus, Paul was a good Jewish guy. Well, he's always a good Jewish guy. He just was looking for Messiah, and then he found him. That's really kind of the way it was. He didn't cease to be a Jewish guy when he came to Christ. He, he, his, he was a Jewish guy. But he was also, though, a persecutor of the early church. That's what he was doing. He was chasing down Christians and throwing them in jail because he thought they were part of some weird cult. He did. That's the story in the book of Acts, chapter 8. So that's Paul. But he says, the gospel didn't come to me because I went to a Sunday school class. No, God gave this to me. Now, when did that happen? Well, we're not sure. Well, there was a moment, of course, as we'll see in a few minutes, in Acts chapter 9, the story of Paul being interrupted on the road to Damascus as he was going there to persecute, chase down and throw in jail some other followers of Jesus. Jesus met him, and Paul said, who are you? He was thinking there's this crucified Messiah who was dead, and people kept saying he was alive, and he saw it as a bunch of rubbish. And then here he is. He says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And Saul, as he was called at the time, went, oh my. That's my translation of what he said. Oh, I had that one wrong, didn't I? Yes, you did. I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So Paul comes to Christ. Was it there on the road to Damascus that he had some kind of revelation? Not sure. Then it, it describes here, uh, here in Galatians 1, how he had some, uh, some time away. He went up to Arabia, that's described in verse 17, returned again to Damascus, but, but then had a conversation with uh, Peter, as described in verse 18, the other apostles, and together they come to, came to the agreement, the understanding. You know what, Paul, what you heard from God, that's exactly the gospel we preach. That's exactly it. And Paul says, yes, and I didn't get it from you. I got it from God himself. So this is a mark of Paul being an apostle, is God gave him direct revelation. That's what I'm wanting us to see here, the marks of a true apostle, apostolic authority. We'll talk about the marks next week. But apostolic authority came with unique privileges. Now, my third little bullet point here, I want to take a moment on this as well for your good and for your uh, sharpening of the way you think theologically. Uh, today, in the broader Christian community, meaning books and, and sermons and places on TV and so on, um, every now and then I will hear this, as I did just recently. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Is that true? 100%. Yes, it is. I'll get a good amen out of that. Yes, that's true. Does that mean he always does things the same way? Absolutely not. But I hear people trying to connect the dots of that. You shouldn't do that. That is, Jesus Christ is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God did these things at this time, so he should do those same, th same things today because he never changes. 
This is the way it was in the time of Jesus. And because God never changes, he does the same thing today. And then on to the book of Acts. And these are cool things that were going on. And because God never changes, he shouldn't change now. Hold it. Back the bus up. The fact that God does a certain thing at one point. I mean, read your Bible. It's all over the Bible. Doesn't mean he's going to do things the same way. And dear friend, you need to know this because what you see God do for someone else, that isn't a guarantee he'll do exactly the same thing for you. That's troubling to some people. Let me just give you a, a couple things to help you think about it. There's a wonderful story in 2 Kings chapter 4. Elijah and Elisha. That's a season in the Old Testament where God was doing some miracles through those two prophets. Elijah and Elisha. That was a miracle season. How many miracles did God do through David? You're correct. Zero. That would be none. Crickets. Silence. There were none. There were no miracles that God did through David, but, but he did through Elijah and Elisha. And in 2 Kings 4, Elisha, who was the, the successor to Elijah, he comes across this, this poor, poor widow lady who's not making it financially. Okay? And God, through Elisha, does something wonderful. He says, You've, what do you have? I got a jar of oil. He said, well, go get from all your friends and neighbors, get a whole bunch of other jars, empty jars, and bring them all in, shut the door of the house, and use your one, like a pitcher, your one pitcher of oil to fill those guys up. And that pitcher's never going to run out. Well, that's kind of fun. And that's what she does. She fills up with her single pitcher all these jars of oil, and then it, it quits making more oil. Now, how many times, Bible quiz, how many times in the Bible do you read of God refilling jars of oil endlessly. Come on, how many times? One is the answer, that'd be two. One, one, he does it once, he does it once. And he never does it again. Are there no more poor widow ladies who could use a hand? Yes, there are. But that one time, God did it that way for her. So what I'm saying is, the fact that God did it this way for her Sometimes people end up saying, well, God did that. He never changes, so he should do the same thing for me. And it isn't a jar of oil. I need my gas tank filled. So I'm just going to ask God to keep filling my gas tank. Perpetual gas in my gas tank. Wouldn't that be amazing? Well, yes. Could God do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, he, I'm sure he could. Is he likely to? Probably not. Fill your own gas tank, I think the moral of that story would be. No, I'm, I'm simply saying the fact that God does something for somebody in one, at a time in one way doesn't mean that you should call on God and say, do the same thing for me because you never change. Okay, hold on. Okay, uh, Peter walked on water, not very long and not very well. Uh, but nobody else has, to my knowledge, other than Jesus. Uh, Jesus raised the, a young man from the dead and returned him to his mom. Seen that done recently? Yeah, me either. Me either. Could God do that? Absolutely. So I, I, I think that this is an important issue for, for us to think about. When you hear somebody say, well, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever, therefore. Always watch the therefores. That means, well, well, we'll see more of this in just a bit. I gave you Hebrews 1 as a reference. In time past, God spoke to the prophets in many portions and many ways. These last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So the fact that God did it a certain way here doesn't mean he's always going to do the same thing there. Okay, I want to step into the text here. You have that in front of you. Let's look at some details here of what Paul is talking about. So Paul is continuing this boasting, this defense of his apostolic authority. 
begrudgingly, so to speak. He says, this isn't really what I want to do. I think that's the idea in verse 1. Now, in verse 2, he begins this expression about telling the story. He says, it's 14 years ago, so he clearly knows that, which time-wise fits the time when he came to Christ and probably headed off into Arabia. So the timing is is pretty accurate in terms of of his experience. But he says, I know a man in Christ. And then um, he says the same phrase twice, in the body, out of the body, don't know. This man, he uses third person to say this guy in verse 3. He heard, so he distances himself. What's he doing here? This man, again in verse 5, what's he doing? I'll tell you what I believe. I think he is using this as a, 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 a way of speaking that distances himself from what was his experience, a way to focus the attention away from him rather than on himself. I think that's what Paul's doing. Um, I, I, again, I look at verse 7. Uh, it doesn't make sense if he just has this as a buddy who had this cool experience, if God would then give Paul a thorn in the flesh because of this other guy's cool revelations. That doesn't seem to follow. It also would not support Paul's apostolic authority if it happened to some guy down the road. And Paul knew him, had coffee with him or something. So I think it's, it's Paul's way of, of express, uh, telling a story without putting the focus on him. May I use this as a step for just a moment? The Bible is full of literary devices. Did you know that? The Bible is full of literary devices. The Bible is a book of literature, different kinds of literature. And for us to be good Bible students, whether you're a diligent student of the Bible or a casual reader, it means that you need to know how the Bible works. And a lot of theological error has been distributed over the years from people who don't know how the Bible works. Let me give you an example of what I'm pressing on here. Book of Proverbs is a book of what? Proverbs, it's wisdom. It's not a book of promises. Okay? Proverbs are proverbs, not promises. And because sometimes people don't understand the literary type, we, in literature we'd call that a genre, it's a type of writing, people get all kinds of messy things because they treat one type of literature like all the rest, and that's not true. The Bible is written in certain types of literature, so Proverbs are wise sayings that are routinely true. Here's one that you can see right through in a heartbeat. It says in Proverbs 16, I think it's verse 9, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a person's ways please the Lord, his enemies are at peace with him. Is that a promise? Careful? No, it's a wise saying. It's a proverb. But otherwise, you'd say, well, wait a minute. How come David had Saul chasing him down to kill him? A man's ways pleasing to the Lord, he'll not have any enemies? No, it's a wise saying. It's not a promise. And down through the ages, God's people who didn't understand that have read the Proverbs and said, well, they're full of promises. I'm going to claim that one, people would say. I'm going to claim that every promise in the book is mine. I'm going to claim Proverbs, whatever, as my life verse. And you go, oh, my dear friend, you just set yourself up to be grossly disappointed. And the failure is not with the word of God. The failure is your ability to understand what you just read. And so you end up faith sometimes crashing and burning because people say the word of God didn't prove true. Yeah, it did. You just misread it. I'm so sorry. So I'm simply saying they're different genres. Apocalyptic literature works different than Psalms. The gospels are narrative. They're telling a story. Parables are a, a, a type of material within the type of material. Parables work a certain way. You can misuse them. You really can. So we need to be good stewards of the Bible, good, good students. And I'm saying here, I believe that Paul's using a literary device to say, let's keep the focus off of me. I know this guy. 
And then he ends up saying, yeah, well, these revelations came to me. So I think that's what's going on here. You can work it through differently, but that's my reason for understanding it that way. Okay? Uh, So I think this is talking about Paul. Now, it says in verse 3 that Paul, or this man, was caught up into paradise. In verse 2, he calls it the third heaven. What in the world is this? There are cults who talk about a whole bunch of different heavens. Is this a nod to that? Is this talking about these different heavens? May I say this? In the Bible, the word heaven is used in three different ways. Do you know that? It is. I'll give you the three. So uh, one would be the place where the birds fly. Where do the birds fly? Well, in the heavens. You can read this in the Bible. Uh, You can read heaven used as a term for where the sun, moon, and stars are. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. So out there, the the heavens. I looked up in the night sky, looked into the heavens. And then third, this case, the third heaven, the Bible uses that term to speak of the immediate presence of God. Okay? So caught up to the third heaven, I think it's that in in Bible language. Now I understand if you've studied it all in some of these things, ancient cosmologies, it's called uh, understanding study of how the the cosmos is put together. You might be aware of different cosmologies down through the ages. Ancients also sometimes had seven levels and 10 levels. And I'm suggesting here that this is referring basic Bible information, basic Bible understanding of the universe. Uh, three, Three heavens, birds, sun, moon, and stars, presence of God. Check it out. Read the Bible. You'll find those three are used really routinely, okay? So I think that's what's going on. But this is, with all that, he says, I, I was caught up into the presence of God paradise, whether in the body like, uh, or just out. Was it a vision? Did I see? It was real. I don't know if my whole body was there. I don't know. And verse 4, heard things that can't be told that no man can utter. Wow. Does that sound like fun? I think that'd be great. Wouldn't that strengthen your faith? So let me ask you, think, as you think with me about this, why would God give that privilege to Paul and then tell him to go back home and don't talk about it? It's kind of what he does. Why, why would you do that? Huh. I have a theory on that, which I would be most happy to share. Okay? I, I, I believe that God gave Paul that privilege because of how much he was going to suffer. I think that's why. I want to read in Acts 9 why I think that. It's a a hint, and then I'll explain it just a little bit more. It is a significant part of the text. Book of Acts chapter 9 tells the story of of Saul, as his name was called at the time, having this experience with the resurrected Christ hearing a voice, other people couldn't see it, and so on. Boom, here he is meeting with the resurrected Christ. Paul, or Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm, who are you? I'm Jesus. This is amazing, amazing uh, circumstance for Paul. And then uh, God arranges for Ananias, this other follower of Jesus, to go have a one-on-one with, with Saul. And, and Ananias is no dummy. He knows that God just said, hey, go see Saul. He knows that Saul is Mr. Bad Guy number one. He's on, you know, the bad list of the early church. He's on the wanted list. If the early church made wanted posters, Saul was number one. Watch out for this guy. He's going to throw you in jail. So, so they knew not to, you know, avoid this guy at all costs. And Ananias says, uh, Lord, have you heard? <laughs> have you heard? He's a bad guy. 
You want me to go talk to him? And God says, verse 15, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles or the nations. That's the term ethnos, ethne, the Gentiles, kings, children of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Here's the way I see it. This, is, this part's a theory, and you can use it or dismiss it as you wish. It's the way I read the text anyway, though. I think God gave Paul this cool experience, as he describes it, a glimpse into heaven because of how much he was going to suffer, so that when the ship was sinking, as he describes, instead of running around with everybody else and going, oh, no, we're going to die, Paul could say, huh, I'm going to go to heaven. That's not that bad. And when he got Roman lashes five times, 39 lashes, one round of that commonly killed somebody. He had it happen five times, laid your back open, You're laying on your tummy for weeks till you heal, maybe wishing you were dead. I think God gave Paul that glimpse of heaven so that as those lashes fell, he could say, God, today, can I go to heaven today? That would be great right about now. And when Paul uh, had, they stoned him, they threw rocks at him. People are gathering. They're going to throw rocks at him. Uh, and, and man, they think he's dead. They do. They, they stone him. He thinks they think he's dead. Drag him out of town. I think God gave him that experience so that as, as, as Saul saw those rocks coming, he'd say, well, me, finally, today can I go to heaven? Today can I go to heaven? And then I picture him, you know, days later, maybe opening one eye and looking around going, oh, it's you guys. Okay, all right. I was looking for an angel, and there's you. <laughs> That's, so I, I think it was connected with his suffering. God was preparing his heart to suffer greatly. So great privilege, great suffering. That's the way I I see what's going on here. Now, that's verses one through six. Paul is doing this to defend his apostolic authority. Again, more on that next week. I want to move to verses seven to 10. This, this, This next movement of the text, I have under the heading, even great apostles need great humility. So verse seven, because of this this amazing experience, this amazing group of visions and, and revelations that Paul has received. It says here, to keep me from becoming conceited. That's repeated. It says the same thing in, twice in the same verse. To keep me from becoming conceited, proud, arrogant. God, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to, to harass him, he says. God sent some method of suffering. Was this physical? Some believe so. Was it relational, torn relationships? Was it the constant persecution? Possibly. There are a lot of different theories on what it was. I think the what is less important than the why. Uh, some in the category of physical would say, uh, you, you perhaps have read it, uh, theories that Paul had bad eyes because there's a place where Paul says, I know that if possible you'd have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. I think that's probably a figure of speech, guys. If that's your theory, theory, sorry, I don't share that with you. I think that's a figure of speech. I would have plucked out, you would have plucked out your eyes and given it to me. I think it's just saying you'd have done anything for me. I think that's a, a figure of speech, kind of like you'd say about a friend of yours. He is so generous, he'll give you the shirt off his back. That's a figure of speech. You're not going to go give him money to buy more shirts. He's, he's the guy with no shirts. He keeps giving people the shirt off his back. All of us are smart enough to say, yeah, probably not. I don't think he means that. He won't really give you a shirt. But he's generous. So I think that's what's going on. I don't know that there's any other evidence that Paul had bad eyes. But there's something. Now, 
if you look at your sermon notes, some of what I'm going to say here is really hard. It's really hard. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to live. Okay? So I'm acknowledging that, and I'm acknowledging as well that this is hard for me too. I'm not just saying it's hard for you, so good luck. I'm saying this is, this is, this is hard to live. It is. So God knows the Apostle Paul. He knows Paul might tend toward pride. So God, look at my words, God graciously sends him. He graciously, it's a gift of grace. Sends him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humbly dependent on God's strength. In this case, Paul's suffering is a gift from a good and gracious God. Could you just percolate on that for a minute? Just think. For Paul, this suffering, whatever it was, was a gift from a good and gracious God. Sometimes when we think about good theology, study of God, we think about how much God knows. We're aware that God knows past and present and future. Can I give you another category to mull over? God knows contingencies. He knows all the what ifs. That's what we're dealing with here. He knows all the what ifs. Paul, if you didn't get this thorn in the flesh, you'd have been walking really tall. God says, and I know that. I know the contingencies. I know the what ifs. So because I know you'd be walking really tall, I'm going to make sure you don't. I'm going to keep you humbly dependent on me. So this source of pain, Paul, is a gift from a good and gracious king. Okay? As you think about that, let me give you another example of contingencies. Um, This world is full of needs, many of them financial. Every now and then I get this wild idea, wouldn't it be so fun to just have a boatload of money to be able to just support that and pay for that and send that missionary and, and help them build that school and fix that hospital? And wouldn't it be fun to be just filthy rich? Does anybody else think about this? What would you do with a billion dollars? Wouldn't it be fun? I mean, come on. Think of God just gave me a billion dollars. I'd be so generous. No, I would. I'd support all kinds of cool things. And I'd probably buy several houses in Maui, in other warm places, and, and probably a lot of other things I don't need. Or is this just your pastor? <laughs> no, God knows what you would do with a billion dollars. And so far, I'm just guessing, all folks present, he probably hasn't given you a billion dollars. Maybe, maybe it's because he knows what you'd do with it. How before long it would own you. Uh, on some flights recently, I just watched some of the, the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy again. And that, that one ring of power, if you know what I'm talking about, sorry if you don't. The ring of power, before long, it starts owning you. And I, I think money would be like that. So I'm saying contingencies. God knows contingencies. He knows what it would be like if you this or that or all the different what ifs. He knows, he knows, he knows. And in Paul's case here, Paul, God allows, sends, in fact, this, this type of suffering 
because he knows no Paul for your good, for the humbling of your own heart, for the shaping of your character, you must hurt like this. There's no other way for you to have your heart humbled. There isn't than to go through this atrociously painful time. Now, keep going. Verse 8, Paul says, and I prayed that God would remove it. Fix it. God, please, take this away. Three times he pleaded, maybe similar to Jesus praying in the garden, if there's any other way. I see three times, three times. Here Paul says three times, I pleaded. There's an intensity here. He's crying out to God to say, fix this, change it, make it different, heal this disease, change this person's heart, bring that person to Christ, supply my need, whatever that is for you. Three times Paul prayed, and each time God didn't do it. He didn't do it. Now, you could look at that and say, God didn't answer. God said, you know, or maybe, was he even noticing? Did he even hear my prayer? Where's God? That's what people often ask. I mean, I'm prayed, and guess what? People say, it didn't work. Could it be that it did work, and God said no? Could that be? God said no, and the person died. God said no, and this or that broke. God said no, and it wasn't fixed. Could it be that the prayer worked? Wow. My bullet points there. Paul correctly persists in prayer. He pleads with God, yes, this is good. It's good to persist in prayer. But do that knowing that God is a good, good father. He delights to give good gifts. He always sees the bigger picture, and we don't. He sees all the contingencies. Wow. So Paul prays. He does the right thing. He prays. Somehow, some way, God says to Paul, I don't know if that was an audible voice or what it was, but, he, but he, Paul says, God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And may I say, this is the manna principle that we've taught from this pulpit numerous times. It's the story of the Old Testament where God provided bread for his people Daily manna, get up every morning. The manna is there. Remember the time in the wilderness, 40 years? God fed them with bread from heaven. It was there every morning, six days a week, not seven. And the principle, God told them about the manna. The principle involves every morning you show up with an empty bucket. I think this is a, a paradigm for down through the ages about how God treats you and me today. Every morning you show up with your empty bucket and say, God, please give me what I need today. With manna in the Old Testament, you couldn't save it up. You couldn't save it up. It would spoil. Every day you had to go out with an empty bucket. You couldn't keep it. You couldn't stockpile it, put it in the refrigerator, make it into manna balls and put it in the, frig- in the cupboard or something. No, every day you had to come with an empty bucket and say, God, I'm here again. Please give me what I need for the day. God gives grace to come to him to begin with, saving grace. God gives daily grace, what you need every day to live for him. God gives grace to suffer. He does. He gives grace to suffer. He gives grace to die. Dying grace, people call this. All those are evidences of his kindness. People say, but I could never face that kind of illness. And if, you, if you're not facing that illness today, you're correct. You couldn't face it today because God hasn't given you his grace to deal with it. It's not today. But if tomorrow he calls you to deal with illness, suffering, or death, he will give you what you need that day for that day. He will. Okay, that's the manna principle. I don't know how I could ever face, you know what? 
He hasn't given you what you need yet. He hasn't called you to face it. But on the day that he does, he'll meet you there. So Paul then hears from God, my grace is sufficient for you. So he's prayed, he's asked God to fix it, change it, correct it, whatever that is. And when God didn't fix it, he said, then I'll give you grace to handle it. Isn't that interesting? Uh, This week, uh, last week at the European Leadership Forum, um, one of the sessions, I was a part of a guy came in with like a camping mat rolled up under his arm. He said, if you don't mind, I don't want to be a distraction, but I'm going to be lying down on the floor in the back. I thought, hey, just don't go to sleep. Um, (laughs) But he he did. He was lying on the floor in the back. Um, Later, uh, I think it was the next day or so, around him in the food line, uh, cafeteria, we were talking. And he said, "Um, I don't know what you would say to me, but I've got whatever back problems. I've been to every doctor. Um, I've done the following and all the stuff you'd say right away, been to a chiropractor, acupuncture, you know, da, da, da. He, he said, I, I've done every, I've done them all. I've done them all. I've done, had this done, had this done, had this done. It's been years. It's been years. It's been years. I still hurt. People have laid hands on me and prayed and poured oil on me. My good charismatic brothers have commanded it to go away. And, and here I am. And, um, what should I do? So what do you say to that? Yeah, so I said, you know, all I have for you is this. You've, you've prayed, you've asked, you've done everything you could medically. So at this point, it looks like as of today, for today, God is saying no. He might fix you tomorrow. But for today then, the, the, the only other thing you can do is to pray for his strength to face it. Daily grace. That's your only other choice. God, if you're not going to take it away, Give me what I need to carry this well and to carry it rightly before you. I think that's what this is about. My grace is sufficient for you. My power, my strength is made perfect in weakness. I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, Paul says, as he concludes. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. You see that? Isn't that an interesting phrase? I am content, then, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm I'm strong. The gospel takes Jesus, not from a place of power, but it takes him to the cross. Humbly beaten, it's a cross, it's, it's, it's a gospel of suffering. Raised in power, that's right, but a gospel of suffering. I want to go to that final section on your notes as we wrap up, responding to God's word. And I just just want to highlight a couple phrases from what I've given you down here. I'll let you read all of that. I mentioned the whole thing about normative, normative things. Please please take the time to read Hebrews 11, 32 to 40, because there are two parts that you, you might miss the second. The first part of that is, is, tells all these cool stories of God's deliverance, and the second part talks about all the times when God was just as present and people died. Got eaten by the, eaten by the lions, didn't work out, hidden holes of the earth, sawn asunder. So, so the first part we love, it's the middle of verse 35 that we, where you hit the other part. You go, whoa, hold on. Uh, I said last hour or two, there's a sermon someday I want to preach because that text talks about Daniel in the lion's den and God delivering Daniel. How cool that is. We love the story of Daniel in the lion's den, but we typically in our Sunday school classes don't tell the other part. 
Here's my sermon title that I'll never use. Sometimes the lions eat you. Wouldn't that be a fun sermon to preach? And that's what it would be about. God shut the mouths of the lions for Daniel. And for hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of early Christians, the lions ate them. Christians suffering today in different parts of the world, sometimes to death. Right now, there are things going on in different parts of the world. Myanmar, and oh my goodness sakes, India, some of these places. Wow, suffering. Sometimes the lions eat you. Then you go to heaven. Well, so I'm asking you here in this first category, do you willingly accept no from God? Does a no cause you to doubt his ability or his goodness? How do you handle it when you pray and God doesn't fix it? Are you willing to accept no from God? And then my final element there, human pride. That's why God gives Paul that thorn in the flesh. I'm just asking you, how do you battle the strong pull of, toward pride in your life? How do, you, how do you battle pride? And by the way, don't you dare look at me and say, oh, that's not much of a problem for me. Oh, it is too. To, to battle pride, to face the, the, the pull of pride is to be human. And the reason we stumble and say that's not me is because we only think of pride in one way. We think of it as walking a little too tall and thinking too much of ourselves. There, that's pride. And the Bible gives you a lot other ways that pride shows up in your life. That's only one. Pride surfaces in your life in fits of anger as you demand the world to be your way. Shows up in how you try to control other people. That's pride. Shows up in some cases how you talk too much and control every kind of conversation that comes your way. Stuart Scott would explain that in one of his books. Pride. Attention here, please. Attention here, please. Attention here, please. Pride. Pride bores many different faces, including, including what we call poor self-esteem. You ever thought about that? It's a, it's, an, it's, it's a form of pride. I'm so eager for you to tell me that I'm amazing. So I'm going to say, I feel awful. You're going to go, oh, no, but you're amazing. And I'm going to say, would you expand on that? Uh, I might not say it, but I'll think it. No, even what we call poor self-esteem is a manifestation of pride. Well, more on that at another time. I hope you know Christ. He's the key to this whole thing. Christ, his work in Paul's life, his work in yours. I'd like to pray for us that we would think about these things, that God would help us as we handle whatever thorn in the flesh uh, we may or may not have, whatever difficulty, whatever struggle. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I thank you for this uh, text and the story of the Apostle Paul and what you were doing in his life. And I thank you for the great privileges you gave him, for the great suffering that you allowed him to experience, and for how you loved him so much that you didn't want his character ruined by pride. And so you gave him something, a gift of your generous hand that would keep him from being proud. Father, thank you that you love us enough. Thank you that you love us enough to let us go through difficulty because there we'll meet you in a way that in our strength we might not. So Father, may we learn the lesson that the Apostle Paul was working on learning, that in our weakness, your power shows up. Father, would you, would you teach us that lesson in a powerful way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.